Silent Hill 2 has a really special play on my heart as a non-gamer, as someone who studies storytelling and loves horror. This use of horror, the source of the horror here is dread and mystery, and what is even more important, sadness. This game is built around tragedy. It is a experience with tragedy and consequence. And that's far more powerful. Well said. You are listening to the Horrible Imaginings podcast, the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival in San Diego, California. We discuss genre and art, history, film, and beyond in order to understand the misunderstood and destigmatize the stigmatized. Your hosts are Miguel Rodriguez and Angela Englert. Hello, listeners. Thank you for listening once again. I want to just give you a quick heads up that the first half of this episode will be a spoiler-free discussion of Silent Hill 2, while the second half, beginning at about the half-hour mark, will be a spoiler-filled analysis and full discussion of the plot and characters of Silent Hill 2. So, spoiler warning indeed, starting at around minute 30 to 34, and it will, you'll get another spoiler warning. Today we are going to focus on a medium that I've only talked about maybe once or twice in the past, and that medium is video games, or really, to be honest and specific, one single video game that is part of a franchise, but we're going to zero in on one. And in order to do that, my esteemed co-host, Angela Englert, has joined me. Hi, Angela. Hello, Miguel. I also hold you in high esteem. Oh, thank you. Well, you, <laughs> you, are, you are much more of a video game aficionado than I am. I believe we have established that, yes. I have wasted, burned a lot of lifespan on video games, particularly survival horror video games. Well, if, if there's any video game genre that I tend to give a shot, it's, it's the survival horror genre for obvious reasons. But I think maybe in the last 15 years, basically around the time video games as a console have matured to what they are now... I could probably count the number of games I've played, if not on one hand, then on two. So not many. I, I'm still more versed in Frogger and Super Mario <laughs> Brothers. <laughs> Castlevania. Oh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Yes, I remember that. I loved that one. That was in the 90s. Castlevania is a beautiful game. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it goes without saying that... I would not fit the title of gamer very well. Well, that's all right, because I totally do. And my grade point average in college reflects this. Wonderful. <laughs> no. So we're going to be talking about Silent Hill. Specifically um, Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill 2. Still considered one of the best video games ever made, certainly from a storytelling standpoint. Although it was a sequel... It's still held in much better regard, probably, than even the first entry into the franchise, which is particularly interesting because it 
really took a step away from the mythology established in the first game and told its own story, told it so well that people are still playing it. There was an HD remake of it a couple years ago, and you don't see that happening an awful lot with games from the PlayStation 2 era. And the reason we're going to be talking about this particular game, other than the fact that it's awesome and people should still seek it out and play it whenever however they get a chance because it's a great story that needs to be experienced. We have the unfortunate news very recently that Konami, the developer that makes the Silent Hill series, has canceled the planned sequel for later this fall, I believe. I think it was supposed to be a Q3 release, Silent Hills, which would be technically the fifth entry in the series, although there have been more non-numbered sort of side titles over the years. This was really hotly anticipated, not just because it was a new Silent Hill game and the first Silent Hill game on the latest generation of consoles, but it was going to be an unprecedented star-studded lineup with Guillermo del Toro, who needs no introduction probably for the listeners of the Horrible Imaginings podcast, Norman Reedus, who also probably doesn't need a lot of introduction from Walking Dead. Lots of women in their 30s will kill themselves if Daryl ever gets offed on that show. Also, Hideo Kojima, who is one of the most famous video game developer geniuses in the industry. He's primarily associated with the Metal Gear series, which has been Konami's flagship series for eons now but he's also done incredible work on Tokimeki, Zone of the Enders, Castlevania actually. Uh, He was executive producer for uh, Lords of Shadow. He's just a big rock star in video gaming and much beloved and the fact that he was going to be working on the next Silent Hills was It was amazing. It was like having Francis Ford Coppola direct the next Fast and Furious movie. It was Mm -hmm. like, woo, upgrade, which is not to say that the franchise has fared badly at all. Team Silent, the original team behind Silent Hill, went on to be completely awesome. So everybody's very excited about this entry. And then there starts to be some rumblings. Kojima-san is having issues with Konami, sort of internal problems with the latest Metal Gear sequel. There's going to be these rumors that he's leaving the company and close upon rumors that he's leaving the company, the murmuring that the Silent Hills game is going to be canceled. There was a playable demo of the game that was released last year. And that's been up on the PlayStation Store. They took it down. I have it on my PlayStation. If you have it on your PlayStation, you can play it. But if you don't, you're going to have to go on eBay because (laughs) it is no longer downloadable. Don't you have to buy it on a whole console? Yeah, you do. Wow. Because you, you can't download it. And were I to delete my copy of this demo, which is called PT, when they released it, they didn't tell anybody what it was. It was sort of like, you know... a surprise at the end um and it is the scariest walking from one side of a hallway to the next side of a hallway simulator you will ever play (laughs) (laughs) what pt Um, stands for i think playable trailer ah 
I think that's what it's supposed to be. So, you know, they took it down. If it's deleted, I wouldn't be able to re-download it, even though it would be in my library. So if anyone deletes that, they're going to get killed. (laughs) (laughs) PT's gone. Konami did come out and say that Silent Hills is for real canceled. Guillermo del Toro said, you know, it's not going to happen. Their contract with Norman Reedus expired, all of this. There are still fan petitions to bring back the game. There's a lot of social media outcry. A change.org petition. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> PS4, I know. PS4 is with just PT, the playable trailer, showing up on eBay now. How much are those um, going for? You know what? Let's, let's get a real-time update. All right. Let's get it. Oh, shit. Uh, 2100 yeah wow 1800 or 1250 you know depending on where it is in the auction of course yeah wow i should sell my ps4 no (laughs) at least not until i visit you and play it i I have that's true or i can bring it to san diego oh yes Um, yes you can (laughs) tap my fingers (laughs) So, so is there no way, I mean, this is going to be showing my ignorance here, but is there no way to transfer a downloaded game from one console to another? Well, I'm sure that there is. They don't make it easy. I mean, no, <laughs> because you can use memory devices, sticks and things. And I'm sure that you can, I mean, it's, It's a device connected to the internet. I'm sure that there's a way. I just don't know if there's some sort of DRM in there. I imagine that there must be. That would render it very difficult to get at or actually play. Because everything's linked to your PlayStation account. You know? So, I'm sure there's a way. But it's beyond my law-abiding skills. Since we're lawful good... We are stuck with the way things are. Just curious there. <laughs> no, no, no. It's... I think no. uh, I think it would help if we talk about the medium of video games to start with. Oh, yeah. And try to appeal to anyone who might not be a video game player about how it's changed over the years and about how people might have preconceptions about it and that kind of thing. There are a couple of things that are difficult in discussing One of them is that if we were to discuss a book, or if we were discussing, obviously, films is probably the easiest. Usually those discussions can end with people reaching out to try the book or the film or the play or or whatever it is. With video games, it's a little bit harder because of two reasons. One is the time that it takes, which is interesting to say because reading also is, is a time commitment. But there is... A greater perceived prestige with reading a book that's not there with playing a video game. And so I think, you know, non-gamers are like, sure, I'll try that book, but less apt to say, sure, I'll try that video game. Well, you need skill to play a video game. That's the next thing I was going to say. Yeah. Well, you do need skills to read, but most people have... That's true. (laughs) Sorry. You need need skills to read. (laughs) Phonics. But, you know, it... Yeah, and to read well, and to, yeah, you're you right. You need a skill set for video games that's not taught starting with grade school. 
<laughs> you know, and yeah. that's the difference. And for non-gamers, particularly older non-gamers, video games are hard and not fun. Yes. I think one thing I would say about Silent Hill 2 is my interest in it as a non-gamer is in the story. And my interest is not so much with the gameplay aspect. And I'll be first to admit that I play it on beginner because I don't care about being a really good game player. I just kind of wanted to see what happened to James. Yeah. And you can play it on beginner and it's still scary. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, uh... I would put that out there for, you know, anyone who might want to give it a try. But that's my take on it. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. That is the thing about the Silent Hill series. And actually, it's not uncommon with survival horror games. Because as the genre title implies, it's about survival. They're not supposed to be easy. And often they're designed deliberately to be kind of difficult it's not going to be something that you're supposed to sail through and excel at although they might grade your performance like the resident evil series will grade your performance and things based on how much health stuff you consume and how long you take to get through a section and all that kind of thing and performing well can unlock bonuses like with silent hill if you beat it on normal or above difficulty then when you do another run through you'll have an extra weapon or something like that. And that's the other Uh, thing. I I don't know if non-gamers would play it more than once. No, that is true too. The other thing that I've always really liked about Silent Hill and its difficulty settings though, in addition to being able to calibrate the gameplay aspect, you know, whether you're going to have to strafe and, you know, how much help you get aiming when you have to shoot and that kind of stuff, where you can set that on beginner. You can also set the riddle levels. Yes. Because, and, and, you know, that's an aspect of it where, you know, if you are perhaps your more stereotypical Call of Duty player, maybe you don't want to have to think so hard. I don't know. That was terrible of me to say. That's true. You know, a lot, well, a lot of people don't want to have to think about it so hard. And this actually came out at a time where, where FAQs were not as instantly available and plentiful as they are now. You know, even though there was an internet, so... And we should not table the fact that I think the riddles in Silent Hill 2 are one of its weakest aspects. Not necessarily in terms of how annoying or difficult (laughs) they may be, but just in terms of they're just kind of dumb. Assembling the handle thing? (laughs) Yeah, like that's that's just so dumb. Especially given how much attention is put to the set design and the story and the metaphor and all of that, it's a it's a little bit of a letdown when the riddles are, are so inane. Like, why couldn't James just have used his steel rod to pry that door open and not melted wax and put a horseshoe in the wax, which I don't know if that would even work. It would just kind of pull out of the wax, I would think, you know? Okay, rain on my parade. I am. I am going to rain on it because... <laughs> I'm approaching this from a, a. I'm going to be hard on it. I'm appro- because, and the reason I'm going to be hard on it is, it it deserves a more critical eye because I do believe it is an exceptional example of what can be done with the video game medium. When I first came to this game, I was not convinced that video games were more, or could be more, I will say, than a way to spend some time. Like, 
Nintendo was or even Super Nintendo or something like that. It never had occurred to me until I played this game that there could be some storytelling chops behind it and a way for an artist to say more with it. Now, I have yet at this point, and and that's probably because I don't play games that much, but I have yet to have the experience I had with Silent Hill 2 again. And I played this, by the way, in 2006. That's a full five Mm -hmm. years after it came out. But the experience was like an epiphany because mm-hmm. as I kept going, not only was the, you know, the atmosphere and the the sound design and the radio crackling and the fear that it instilled in me while playing it, that was all more than I expected and very impressive. But what made it as much of an epiphany as it was, was as I'm playing the realization that what was going on in the game had a deeper meaning. Like, none of it was literal. And I found that all very interesting. Far more interesting than anything I thought that could be done with the medium. I mean, you said earlier that Silent Hill 2 was thought of as better than the original, even though it was a departure. And my opinion is that it's better because it's a departure my you know silent hill one and then silent hill three again which kind of went back to one there is a very literal thing that's going on in this town with demonology and cultists and all this stuff and silent hill 2 is not that at all it's something very different which we'll talk about more in a little bit and that is actually what i find interesting about it that's what changed my mind about the potential for the video game medium. So for you, when you consider this game, you really consider it as a story that's presented in a game box. So you could see this story being delivered with a different medium as successfully? I don't know. That's hard to say because, well, hmm, let's just say that it would take something very thoughtful and brilliant in order to do so i don't think it could be delivered in a film medium successfully maybe in literature Mm -hmm. um it won't be the same experience i'll answer that way There, there i don't think there's any way you can make this the same experience because of the interactive nature of controlling james sunderland as he's walking in these isolated paths and mm-hmm. the sound and all of the elements of gaming and the interactive elements of gaming that go into it. It's a very specific experience that's very specific to that medium. And for that reason, I I, I don't think it's smart to attempt to adapt it to another medium. It, it was designed for that. And, and the original Team Silent, it seems to me, and after seeing the making of Silent Hill 2 and hearing those guys talk, I, I feel that this is a confirmation of that but it seems to me that what they were trying to do was take the video game medium and do something completely different with it and take a lot of risks and they talk about you know there's these moments where james just walks and walks and walks Mm -hmm. in order to instill this this isolation And he doesn't have to do anything or fight anything or encounter anything. It's just loneliness and the sound of his footsteps. And of course, with the fog, you can't see more than a few feet in front of you. And you don't really know exactly where you're going. And all of these things combine to really build a palpable atmosphere. But it's not a 
typical or classic video game thing to do. Video games are all about action. And this is like the antithesis of that. In fact, Carol Borden from The Cultural Gutter, I remember, said about Silent Hill, one of the things she liked about Silent Hill 2 is that you didn't have to fight the monsters. And she would actually not fight any of them. She would just keep running. Yeah, that's another aspect of the whole survival horror genre. You need to survive. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to kill anybody. Right. Often you might be able to. Yeah, even though you might be able to. And in the case of James Sunderland's story in Silent Hill 2, it takes on a whole other meaning whether or not you decide to kill the monsters, uh, particularly with the monster Pyramid Head, which is a completely different concept altogether. I guess... Let's talk about Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill 2. Love Silent Hill 2 so much. It really is as close to a literary experience as I can think of in a video game. And this came out in 2001. It's maybe disappointing that its success in this way hasn't been replicated or hasn't been... Has it even uh, been attempted to do something like this again? Well, I think every Silent Hill tries to catch the Silent Hill to magic. I really do. Particularly when the development was taken away from... When Team Silent was no longer affiliated with the project, it went to American developers. And I know, I mean, you can feel in Silent Hill Homecoming how hard they wanted to make that game Silent Hill 2. They wanted it to be as potent they wanted the twist to be as shocking they wanted it to have levels of resonance but they ended up don't mean to divert into a conversation about the merits of that game when we're celebrating this one but what silent hill 2 did manage to do so well was use those gameplay elements like you were talking about and that carol had mentioned in an unconventional way and so often that is what makes horror and you know also sometimes comedy effective is when you can wring a surprise out of the audience i mean the story in this game is quite beautiful but if when we state it baldly particularly we've had so much sophistication in media, particularly televised dramas. I think that stories of this kind were uh, less likely to be found in TV than they would be today. I think that this is a story with a very current sensibility. Maybe that's debatable. You mentioned the word literary, and and I'm going to agree with that. I think it would be more likely to be found in a literary format than television or movies, and that's because it's far more cerebral than most television. And television is getting a little more cerebral, but not really. And film, especially from Hollywood, and Hollywood would be the ones producing a film like this, then Mm -hmm. it's more cerebral than they're willing to go. No, that's true. I'm thinking, you know, particularly after Silence of the Lambs, I think the appetite for a certain kind of narrative sharpened a bit. Mm -hmm. And so you see, um, particularly in the early aughts, which was when this came out, quite a few dark twist endings becoming super fashionable. Late 90s, early 2000s, your sevens and your 12 monkeys and your things like this that are on one level or another pretty cerebral. 
But those yeah. are such rare examples. Those are rare examples. You know, this, this is a rare example. But the point is, the telling of the story is so much a part of its success. And that's also part of why it being a video game is important and shouldn't be forbidding to people who haven't experienced video games. It's an experience that's going to be impossible to find any other way, any other where. Oh, I agree. And anyone who says, oh, I'll just see Silent Hill the movie, no. No! Yeah, it's like, it's not the same thing. I should say, too, we're, we'll go, we're going to continue here to kind of a plot summary and, and talk about the characters and the way the story is revealed. But the storytelling aspect of Silent Hill 2 is kind of esoteric and very mysterious. Even when you finish the game, it's still rather esoteric in a lot of ways. So that a lot of what actually happens and happened in the game is really up to a lot of interpretation from those who play it. That's one of the things I like about it. So, you know, you and I might have different reads on it. You know, for me, the game is entirely internal. Like, there is no real external antagonist going on in the game. It all seems to be internally James. I think at most, all everything that's going on is a, is a manifestation of James's inner turmoil. But it's such an internal game. That's what I find interesting about it. I don't see a real external force. Rather, I see the creation of the town of Silent Hill as the manifestations of people's inner turmoil. I just don't see any of the monsters as being like monsters in another video game. Rather, they're created by the people who inhabit the town or who happen to be stuck in the town. Yeah, I think that's valid. It reminds me, I mean, I still remember starting a unit on Edgar Allan Poe in high school and my high school English teacher starting by saying, there is no supernatural in Poe. <laughs> and it's, you could, you could very well do that with Silent Hill 2. You could say, there is no supernatural in, in Silent Hill 2. Or not. <laughs> exactly, or not. Um, you're right. It reminds me of you know, Turn of the Screw and things like that. Hellraiser Inferno, but that's you a terrible comparison. You see we're comparing this video game to, though, is we're, we're talking about it in terms of Poe or in terms of Henry James. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of crazy to talk about a video game in those terms, but I think it's valid in this case. It's also interesting, as you'll find with a lot of survival horror games, it sort of apes the conventions of American horror movies just a little bit. Mm -hmm. But not successfully. And I think that is what makes it successful. It attempts to ape American horror movies like Amityville Horror, but mm -hmm. everything about it is so Japanese. And the melding of the two is so unique. Uncanny? Yeah, and uncanny. There is a real empathy for everything that happens in the game and that's japanese in american horror it is man versus the monster and you know it's all about trying to escape the monster or kill the monster and a lot of times unless it's a more classic horror film a lot of times there's not a lot of sympathy or empathy for that i mean think think about like paranormal activity or even the exorcist you know, there's not a lot of empathy for the antagonist in the exorcist it's just about getting reagan to safety 
Whereas this is something very different. And a, a lot of the monsters, whether it's uh, in Japanese folklore or Shinto mythology or Godzilla movies or you know, Evangelion or in Silent Hill, or I just saw an anime called Parasite, which I really enjoyed. There's a real effort to see things, if not through the point of view of the monster, at least to humanize or build some level of empathy with the antagonistic force that you don't see as much in American horror. And so adding that more Japanese element to the Team Silence attempts to make an American horror movie or American horror story is part of what makes this interesting. I think if they had been totally successful in making it American, it would be Silent Hill 1, <laughs> you know? I was going to say, also, what's key is a very Japanese horror aspect. And, you know, it's also something that you'll find more in your literary horror as well. The comfort with ambiguity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that's actually number one on what makes this game so successful is yeah. there's no need for explaining really anything. There, I mean, no. they explain things on a very kind of surface level, but but really, not everything has to be interpreted, and everything is left in shrouded in some veneer of mystery, and that is what gives it its power. Absolutely. So, should we just do a bald? plot summary or how would no, you like I think to well, well yeah maybe a little bit but let's start i think let's start with with characters and we'll of course start with james we should say here that we're gonna spoil the hell out of the story of this game oh yes <laughs> i just wanted to put that out there did say i'd give another spoiler warning and here it is spoiler warning from here on out so james sunderland one and this kind of it goes across the silent hill franchise and you could speak more to other video games but way back way back in 2006 when i played this my first attraction to it is that you aren't some macho military gun toting character which seems to be in every video game ever including a lot of survival horror like Resident Evil, like your special ops cop or whatever, and Dead Space, and even the last uh, game that I played that was a survival horror game called uh, The Last of Us, which I did really enjoy. But you're still this uber-fighting, really macho, can-take-the-world-on kind of character. And James is not that. No. James is kind of a pushover, kind of melodramatic james is just a guy james is a guy that if you if you shouldered him on the subway he would he would just make way and he wouldn't even look at you yeah and he he you know you start the game there's no weapons or anything like that you start the game and you're in a dirty rest stop bathroom and james is looking in the mirror and he's received a letter from his supposedly dead wife who had died three years previous and the letter is telling him to come to this town of silent hill and he goes and it seems like james is driven by almost against his will a little bit i've seen a lot of complaining of people who talk about this story you know say well why don't he just get in his car and drive away and i think that psychologically he's unable that's not an option 
No, I, I mean, there's nothing stopping him from doing that, except that that's not what he wants to do. Except himself. And that's going to turn out being a very key theme in this whole story is what is stopping James and what is hindering James is himself. That's one of those things that you're going to be subtly reminded of all the way through, even to the fact that when you go to the save game screen, you know that you can save because there's these bright, lurid red squares (laughs) and you you uh, do your action button with that and it brings up the screen with the save slot and everything. And it's just a big blow up of James's face. Yeah. James's milk toast staring face <laughs> in bright, bright red. And that's a little unnerving. I remember the first time I played it and that came up. It, I think it made me jump just a little bit. Oh, and he's kind of looking just right at you. He's absolutely looking right at you. And, and just like when you begin the game with him, um, you know, staring into his own face, staring into that dirty, dirty, filthy, gross rest bathroom mirror. You're looking into his eyes and it's, it's very unnerving. It hooks into you a little bit. It does. Yeah, it is unnerving. I think the first time you, well, this might be my experience and other people will laugh at me, but when you first encounter that safe spot you were talking about, I think it's in a well as you're walking down a path outside Silent Hill. And uh, I didn't know what it was. And when you click on it, it's the only time this happens. But when you click on it, James says to himself that he's feeling kind of woozy or, or he's getting, I forget the exact words. Like someone's grabbing around in my brain. Yeah. Words to that effect. A lot of what is unsettling about Silent Hill is the way they present the mundane. Like the best, like the bathroom. Like a sink, like a urinal, like a parked car. All of this comes together. But anyway, so James is resolved to find out why he has this letter from his three years dead wife. And the only way he can think to do that is to go to this town of Silent Hill where apparently they have some romantic history. So he's familiar with the town in a way, which I think it's quite significant that James is familiar with an iteration of the town of Silent Hill. At this point, I mean, I kind of want to point out that this is Silent Hill 2, but it's a completely different take on this, this haunted town idea, which was presented in Silent Hill 1. In the first Silent Hill, you have a town inhabited by a cult that is trying to raise a Lovecraftian elder god, and their efforts to do that split the town into two parts, you know, the nightmare version and the ash version and all this kind of stuff. But in this game, there's none of that. This game, all you know about the town of Silent Hill is that James has a history with it. And that when he gets there this time, it's isolated, it's lonely, it's foggy, and he encounters some unusual things. It's quite mysterious. Yeah, and it's completely empty. It's very neglected. It's dirty. All the surfaces are uh, corroded, grimy. It looks like it's been in neglect for a very long time, which is another one of those pointers towards the resolution of the story. It's sort of a pathetic fallacy 
that's going on with the town. Especially since it's supposed to be an idyllic, romantic setting. I mean, that's how it's described in Mary's letter. All allusions to it from his past are a place of supreme tranquility. It's also worth noting that the whole concept of there being two sides to the town doesn't exist here. It's just what we see through James's eyes. And that's that's critical as well. The town is as we see it through James's eyes. And that's going to come up later on in terms of how people see the town. So when James leaves the bathroom, there is a seemingly endless walk down a wooded path toward Silent Hill. And, you know, I would interject here just a little bit for those who might be wondering you know for those who aren't gamers and they're wondering about whether they can get into the story this sequence is really brilliant and if you can just spend the five or ten minutes with the game to get to this point that we're talking about here that'll give you a pretty good indication of what this game is going to mean i am going to suggest lights out and headphones on too yeah, I think that that's usually a best practice in uh, in horror games. I remember, I remember the first time that I played this, we actually had a power outage, and that was awesome. <laughs> um, but I I did end up playing it in the dark, and it was creepy, and there were candles, and it was very effective. And the sound design is something that really needs to be experienced to the fullest extent possible. Gonna, yeah, I'm going to name Akira Yamaoka by name because he is not only the design, the the musician, the composer of the music in the game, which is all very nice, but he's the sound designer and the sound effects creator. And if you get the Silent Hill 2 soundtrack you'll get a couple of you know traditional sounding theme songs like the theme of laura and a couple of others but a lot of it is this terrifying atmospheric collection of sounds whether it's you know pipes scraping against metal walls or or distant bangings or silence or footsteps and this first walk towards silent hill through that path you hear james's crunching of leaves on the ground underfoot but occasionally you'll hear these sounds in the distance and this is your introduction to the game you have no idea what to expect or if anything's going to jump out at you or anything like that and that's another thing about this game i think there might be maybe two jump scare type things but mm-hmm. mostly it is just a prolonged feeling of dread probably the most difficult version of fear to try to attempt to instill in someone and they pull it off. Yeah. And it never feels cheap or like a fake out or anything like that. It's all very, very genuine. And the sequence, you know, we've talked about a couple of times so far, even it, but it's just, it takes such a risk to put the player in the situation where they're going to be, walking where they're not where they're not playing yeah exactly they're and but it is so unnerving there's one other point that i'd like to make too about the setting and being idyllic as well and this goes to the point about this being through james's eyes Mm -hmm. mary's letter can be read much differently. I mean, you could read it in this sort of bland or sweet tone of voice and read it as, okay, this is an idyllic setting. This is a place where we shared lovely moments. 
or you can read it, you know, in a much more sinister way. And that's part of the brilliance of the writing is, is it is kind of worded in a vague enough way that that can happen. As we're speaking about it's ambiguity, subversion of expectation. It's another version of this experience of the walk down to the, to the graveyard from the rest stop. Mm-hmm. And, and so far, all we've talked about is the walk down to the graveyard from the rest. Yeah, I know. Which, it is such an awesome walk, guys. <laughs> but, you know, all of this conversation, you know, part of me still is like, are you giving too much credit to a video game? And that's my own prejudice talking. And I think this also comes into your question earlier of, could this be translated to another medium? And in terms of the walk from the rest stop to the cemetery, the answer is probably no. No. People would be checking their phones. Yeah. Um, it, and you couldn't really... I don't think you could replicate it in a literary work. I mean, no. maybe... I think it requires interactivity. Yeah. yeah. Because you have to be there. You have to experience it. And no matter how experimental your prose or how free verse you get, I don't know if you can if you can get to that level. I mean, that just speaks for maximizing the medium in which you're working. Something that could work in comics couldn't and probably shouldn't work in film. It's not the same medium. And I think that really goes double here is this is them maximizing the medium in a completely different way than would be expected. Because, again, you're not playing. You're not fighting. There's not even a real solid goal. You're just walking. And you can't see anything. That's another really important part of the visual design is, you know, the fog is claustrophobic. So James takes the walk. He goes down. He finds himself in a graveyard. When you find the graveyard, it should give an immediate sense of dread or, oh, God, I'm in a graveyard. However, after that long walk in which you're feeling very alone and isolated, you see another human being in the graveyard. And so for me, as soon as I walked to the, got to the graveyard, it's a sense of relief. Absolutely. It's, you've arrived somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And there's another person there who's not, a, who's not a, you know, something that's going to kill you. It's a woman. So now we meet Angela. Yes. And Angela is... Your namesake. Uh, my namesake. There's <laughs> Angela Carter, Angela Lansbury, Angela from Who's the Boss, and this Angela. I think those are the only Angelas I'm aware of. Anyway, um, Angela is... She appears to be probably in her late 20s. That's how she appears to me. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a weedy point, but probably worth mentioning anyway. And I was surprised by this watching the making of documentary too. They had a voice actress and actually the voice actress did the motion capture too. And she was in her forties. I mean, she sounds like she's in her forties and this creates this weird kind of uneasy mismatch with her superficial appearance and the way she sounds and also the things that she says. I'm looking for my mama. I mean, my mother. It's been so long since I've seen her. I thought my father and brother were here, but I can't find them either. I'm sorry. It's not your problem. 
I hope you find them. Yeah, you too. Which is pretty infantile anyway, but to hear a 40-year-old woman's voice saying that, it just creates a sort of, you know, a dip into the uncanny valley just a little bit. It's not right. She also seems like she's off in outer space. She barely recognizes that you're there. And when she talks, she kind of talks behind you and talks like she's a little bit delirious. Yeah, she doesn't really seem to know what's going on. She gives James sort of a vague warning about things not being quite right, but she seems resigned to it. And and you would think even after just going through the walk sequence that either of these characters would be extremely eager <laughs> to, you know, hang out, buddy system, talk a little bit more about what they've observed and what's going on. But and you, don't you get as a that. player want that to happen. You really do. You're like, all right, lady, come along with me because we're going into areas unknown. But no, you're back in isolation after this bizarre encounter with this woman in the graveyard. And you just leave her. She's not hostile or anything. And she's just sort of poking around this graveyard looking for her family. And you just kind of leave her because that's kind of how James rolls. Yeah, They're both sort of benignly resigned to this dreadful atmosphere in a way that also seems just slightly off. All this time that we've spent talking about this first eight minutes of the game. (laughs) If anyone out there is like, holy crap, this is going to be an eight million hour podcast. At this point, this feeling is perpetuated throughout the game. So yeah, I don't think we're going to spend this much detail. You know, James is walking down the town and James is going to this building and James is checking this locker. You can kind of take his descent on the path and translate it to 80% of the rest of the game in various locales with the same kinds of feelings. That's true. This is a pretty consistent tone. So he goes into the town. He starts to encounter critters. Mm-hmm. They're very disturbing. They are very wrong the silent hill monsters are always dehumanized in uh yeah, humanoid humanoid is a great description actually yeah silent hill 2 has a few different flavors of these as first is the patient monster that would thematically make sense wouldn't it this is interesting too the game leads you through the town you're walking there's nothing around it's isolated it's foggy you can't see it's all the same as we've described but he comes across blood on the street which is a red flag, of course. He follows the blood and in the distance sees a shape walking away from him. And that is what is referred to as the patient monster. You can say that it's somewhat formless. It's humanoid in shape with legs and a torso. But other than that, where the arms and head would be, it's kind of a almost shapeless blob. But the shape, if it was in silhouette, would look sort of like someone in a straitjacket. And as with all the Silent Hill monsters, what adds to the, what makes it so unsettling is the movement. It's got this herky-jerky movement. Yeah, it's very, we're cutting a few frames out of the film, Marilyn Manson video. Yeah. And this is the part where the quote-unquote game starts, where, you know, you're going to have to start to be a little bit more of an active participant with James in his quest to find out what's behind the letter from his dead wife. You'll meet a 
few more characters and a few different kinds of enemies that are all, you know, these humanoid variations. There are the ones that that stand out or that the mannequin ones I want your take on. The patient and the nurse monsters are very obvious in terms of they represent things being in a hospital. And what we find out about Mary later, that makes perfect sense. Um, So I'd like your take on the mannequin monsters. But before you give me that, the one thing I'll say before James encounters the myriad monsters is he does find an old radio. And the radio is one of the single most brilliant. <laughs> I think it it's in Silent Hill one as well, right? Oh yes, yeah. Yes, this that's is a, a this series. Is a thing. I haven't played Silent Hill one since I played it after I played Silent Hill two, but I still haven't played it since like two thousand six. So that is one holdover that I adore, and it's just in terms of building atmosphere on a on a visceral and sound level. But James finds a radio. It seems broken, but the radio will squeal with static and white noise whenever he is near one of these creatures. So you could walk around in isolation and then the radio will start making this very, which can be a very terrifying sound without seeing monsters. You just know that they're somewhere nearby and it is so creepy. It gets louder with their propinquity. So it's, it's very much like in um, alien where it's like, you know, He's on top of you. It's it's that kind of feeling. Oh, um, Dallas. It's, man, so sad. So we should talk about a couple of the other people that he meets. Uh, and does he also... meet Eddie first or Laura first? I don't think it matters. I can't remember. Let's go with Laura first, okay? Okay, I th- Laura. I think I think it might be Laura. At several points throughout the game, James runs into a little girl about eight years old named Laura. She is a bit of a firecracker. She's a bit rude. But whenever you encounter her, she's kind of playing around. She's not scared. She claims later in the game that she knows Mary and that she's friends with Mary, James's wife, and wants to find Mary and has letters from Mary and all this kind of thing. But a lot of times she's playing piano. She's playing with toys. And she's doing all this in some of the most terrifying places I've ever seen. And all of this is quite interesting. And there's one very telling point where James says to Laura, I can't believe you haven't even gotten a scratch on you. Why should I? She's also very hostile towards James. Yes, very hostile towards James. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is another one of these things that kind of tickles at you a bit is an irritant because James is so pacific and bland and nice, gentle, doesn't seem like the kind of guy that you would ever be hostile towards. Yeah, and it makes it makes Laura come off as a total brat at the beginning. But she may have reasons. (laughs) And then, of course, there's Eddie. Okay, Eddie, Um, you encounter and he's puking. Yeah, that was gross. Yeah, and it's a constant stream of vomit. And Eddie is clearly kind of off his rocker, paranoid. Very defensive. Very defensive. Yeah, that that's the word I was going for. I didn't do it. I swear I didn't kill anybody. And he's like Angela, like Laura. He's in this town 
but he doesn't seem to really be keying in on the same things that James is. And it's a little weird. Kind of like with Laura saying, why would I have a scratch on me? Mm -hmm. And James tries to diffuse his interactions with Eddie. But like Angela, Eddie clearly has something else going on. And he speaks also in vague terms like Angela does. And, you know, we see him puking. And the second time we see him, he's munching down on pizza in a bowling alley. But, of course, all that happens after we meet another character named Maria in the park. Rosewater Park. Yeah, because Mary's letter referred to her and James's special place. Mm -hmm. And part of, you know, what James is trying to do is trying to figure out, okay, what's our special place? What are you talking about? So the first thing he hits on is, well, we went to the park. Maybe she meant the park. So I look for her in the park. And he does. And he finds Maria instead of Mary. And he is very surprised by this because Maria is a dead ringer <laughs> for Mary. Except for the fact that Mary was... I don't want to say dowdy, but, you know, conservatively dressed. Modest. And of course, you know, she modest, yeah, demure. And Maria is showing her tummy. Mm -hmm. Her hair is colored and, you know, she's got pink ends in a way that I wouldn't mind uh, <laughs> emulating if I could ever get my hair bleached out. And she's hip. She's cool. She's sexually activated she's not demure even when she first meets this strange guy in this weird park covered with fog full of monsters monsters by the way she acknowledges this is the first time another character acknowledges that there are monsters everywhere but when james is telling her you know he's looking for his wife and that his only clue was that she was waiting for him at their special place. And he makes a passing remark that the special place could be the hotel. Her reaction is, oh, the hotel, the special place. I'll bet it is. She's almost rudely flirtatious. She's not shy at all. Coarse. She's coarse. Well, yeah. she's going to be a little bit more... Uh, I... I see her described as a prostitute every now and then. Although I don't know that that's ever explicitly supported by anything. Yeah. She does have a key to the nightclub. Perhaps she works on at a strip bar. Yeah. It's not the same I, thing, obviously. But Yeah, but she's a good-looking woman, and she's not shy. And she doesn't dislike James immediately, and she's not weird. So they hang out for a little while and have a little escort mission action, too. Yeah, there are a couple of times when you and Maria are together, and, you, you know, you're walking around as, as per usual, and she's following you. And you have to try to help her in a couple of instances, which is also interesting and important. Her tone, the way she talks to James, it's very schizophrenic. That, that's a misnomer, but it, it's very multiple mm -hmm. personality. There's the sexual flirtatious Maria. There's the coarse Maria. There's the... Why aren't you protecting me, damsel in distress, Maria? There is, you know, all of these various Marias. And all of this leads to a very confusing character and a very complex character. And James has no idea what to make of her. But he does know that he is drawn to her. And whenever she is in trouble, it is distressing for him. Both James and Maria find out about Laura, 
And what's also interesting is Maria is adamant that James needs to make sure Laura comes to no harm. And she even is successful in having James go out of his way, get off his current path of finding Mary to track down Laura and make sure she's safe. Did a little girl run out of here? Yeah, she was too fast for me. Aren't you going to go after her? Okay, James is obviously in tunnel vision. He's got a mission. Nothing is stopping him, not even the terrible monsters, not even the fact that his car is waiting for him. He could leave at any moment, but no, he's driven on this path to find his wife. Yet, when Maria and Laura come into the picture, he's circumvented. He, he, he's taken on a different path for a little while. And those two paths end up merging when he does find Laura, and she does let him know that she has letters from Mary, and, and there's a possibility she knows where Mary is. And suddenly, you know, he, his head's a little more in the game at that point. You know, like you said, he's often very pacific, but when she said, anytime she says Mary's name, he perks up. How do you know about Mary? What's the big deal? Why can't you just tell me? You gonna yell at me if I don't? No. I won't. There's even a point at which he yells at her. It was last year. You liar! Laura, I... Fine, don't believe me. And that causes some problems itself. I think the point being here is, you know, Laura is one way and sees the environment in a certain way. We have Maria, who is a myriad ways and very confusing. And then Eddie and Angela are both kind of mysterious in their own ways. And James has multiple interactions with Eddie and Angela. Mm -hmm. They get progressively more disturbing. They do. You start to get the indication that there might be something that separates Eddie and Angela and maybe even James from Maria and Laura. Yes. Yeah, Maria and Laura are... They're a certain way, but there's something askew about Eddie and Angela. The more you see Angela, the second time you see her, she's lying on the floor in a building and she's holding a knife and she is contemplating suicide. And James ends up taking the knife from her in order to prevent that from happening. But she clearly is having suicidal thoughts and... Even though James takes the knife, it's not clear that she's convinced that suicide isn't the answer. The more you see Eddie, the more he's surrounded by the aftermath of violence. And the more defensive he is that he was not the perpetrator of said violence. So Eddie's violence is much more outwardly focused, whereas Angela's violence is far more inwardly focused. But there is some violence with those two that might not be there so much with Laura and Maria. I think there's one more character that's probably not actually a character, more <laughs> of a monster, but he's still a character. And he's actually, he became so popular that he has been featured in the movies and he's been featured in subsequent games, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, both of which, that's very stupid. <laughs> it's extremely stupid, but he's sold out. Pyramid Head. Hey. And he is, he's a particular monster that James will run across several times and he will never be able to fight. Yeah, and in fact, there are some times where you're just terrified. 
it's amazing that the game pulls off the, this feeling of dread. But Pyramid Head, well, there's one point where you walk up and there's a gate and Pyramid Head is standing on the other side of the gate doing nothing, just staring. And there's no opportunity for battle or him. He's doing nothing, but it's terrifying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's, I mean, should probably describe him a little bit, although his name describes him pretty well. Yeah. He, you know, he's this huge guy with a big, like, you know, man-length sword, like Cloud's Buster sword in Final Fantasy VII, only, you know, not pixelated. And he has this huge conical helmet that's probably as big as his sword. It just looks medieval. Yeah, there's something very just repulsive about Pyramid Head, but also very attractive about Pyramid Head. And this is kind of like going back to our Cenobite discussion in the same kind of way. And the idea that you have who is clearly a force of nature in this game, in, in a gameplay standpoint, if you did stand around and just let him approach you, you would die as a character but if you are playing the game through, essentially, you just don't do anything and eventually Pyramid Head goes away. You're not mm-hmm. really supposed to encounter Pyramid Head. You're supposed to avoid Pyramid Head. When you see Pyramid Head, he is often engaged in sexual violence against some of the monsters that surround you. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I find almost nauseating. These scenes where Pyramid Head, for you know, for all intents and purposes, is raping a collection of mannequin pieces or what have you, and it's just really disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I have a difficult time seeing how that got past the ratings board. Yeah, you know, maybe if the graphics had been better. Right, because it it is very impressionistic, we shall say. Yeah, it's really disturbing and horrifying. And, you know, that goes to what you were asking earlier about, you know, my take on the mannequins. And I I think that the mannequin monsters, much as the nurses, which are another perennial Silent Hill favorite, are super hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. In this game, I think that that's basically what the mannequins are. Yeah, the mannequins, if we were to describe the mannequins, are basically the uh, it's two sets of legs with the crotch attached, basically crotch to crotch. So you've got two legs up top acting as the arms, and two legs in the bottom acting as the bottoms. But really, they're female legs every time, exclusively, and that's what it is. It's two sets of female lower extremities attached including you know the sexual parts so there's a sexual aspect to them and uh, the nurses have very short skirts very plunging necklines the nurse as a symbol in general is classically a sexual symbol um, for whatever reason except of course in both cases there is something inhuman about the nurses and the mannequins, which has this weird blending of sex and repulsion in those characters. But the fact that they're sexualized is is a pretty key point in this game. And the fact um, Maria gets sexualized is a very key point as well. Yeah, that's that's also true. I mean, she is an absolute doppelganger for his wife, mm-hmm. except 
she looks quite licentious and she's playful. She's up for it as James's ailing wife certainly could never have been. That's a pretty important point. So all things said and done, James wanders various locales of Silent Hill, including hospitals and apartment building, apartment building, a historical society in his quest to either find Laura, recover Maria or find his wife. Uh, Let's now talk about James eventually does get to the historical society and find entrance connecting the historical society to a prison. And this is what you were going to talk about earlier, a very long descent down stairs. Yeah, it's a very long descent downstairs in utter darkness. And it goes on seemingly forever. I don't know how long it would take. I mean, you you played it recently. How long would you guesstimate? Uh, seven it, minutes. Seven minutes? Yeah. That's a, that is an eternity. Yes. When you're sitting down, just pushing forward. Yeah. <laughs> and... You know, when we and watched it's dark and, I did and rec- terrifying. It is. And you know, it's again, it's the it's very closely allied with the initial descent from the rest stop into the cemetery. This, and this I, is a straight descent. There's no way that anything can approach you from the sides. No. So that level of ambiguity isn't there. So, you know, you can see well enough ahead and presumably nothing's coming behind you so you would think it would be maybe a little bit less unnerving than being on this in absolute terra incognita you know what is disturbing about it though is that you're going down and down you are down (laughs) down and down and down and to add to this you know once you get to the bottom and go through the next area there are several moments where you have to jump in a dark bottomless pit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So in and that it... entire section, there's this theme of descent. There's this theme of going down and going down for an untold distance. The illusion there is fairly obvious, but it is yeah. also terrifying. And it's irretrievably down in some way. When we were watching the making of Silent Hill 2, which is also great to watch. If you if you play this, you're going to want to watch it because it really does illuminate a lot of the artistry behind making it. it yeah, they talked about how the initial descent to the graveyard was so long that you that you didn't really even think about turning back. Yeah. But this descent, you know, I thought quite a lot about turning back. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not ashamed to say that it's a little anxiety attack provoking even and which is ridiculous you're playing a game how can you possibly get scared i promise you you can get scared it can become intolerable it can become claustrophobic and when you get to the pits it asks you are you sure you want to jump down (laughs) (laughs) but there's no other way there's nothing else to do you're you're stuck you have to jump at this point what is very important involves the character of maria Her character, in a lot of ways, is one of the most important in the game. There are times when you're with her. There are times when she's feeling tired and you leave her to rest on a bed and you come back to check on her and that kind of thing. And then there is a critical moment where you're with Maria in a hallway and Pyramid Head starts chasing you. And you or Maria are running away. There's nothing else you can do but try your darndest to escape. 
you make it to an elevator and uh, Maria is about to catch up with you and ends up being skewered by Pyramid Head and you're in James is distressed at at her death or her apparent death Um, and so James continues the game alone and even more disturbed than he was before because he just lost this companion he had now in the prison James is again looking around finding clues blah 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 playing the game but he comes into a cell and Maria is sitting in there Maria is acting very strange at this point and she's throwing James off a little bit because she's dressed like Maria she looks like Maria and she starts acting like Mary James honey did something happen to you? <laughs> you were always so forgetful. Remember that time in the hotel? And then when he starts saying, Mary, is it you? Then she completely switches gears and she is coarse with him again as Maria. I'm not your Mary. So you're Maria? I am. If you want me to be. And she kind of goes back and forth with this tone And then, of course, there's the highly haunting dialogue where she comes up close to him. And, of course, he saw her get slaughtered. So he's got that in the back of his head as well. And she comes close to him. She goes, I'm here for you, James. See? I'm real. Don't you want to touch me? She touches his cheek. And it's this really chilling moment. But she's behind bars, and he ends up having to leave her again. Then he ends up coming back to the cell, and he finds her corpse, presumably at the hands of Pyramid Head. She's been murdered. So he's seeing her dead. He's seeing her alive. He's seeing her act like Mary. He's seeing her act like Maria. Maria's all over the place and is really playing not just with James's head. It's kind of playing with, with your head as the player as well. And, you know, we're not even really spoiling too terribly much in revealing that because it's so important. The game has a trailer of sorts that it begins with. You know, if you leave it on the menu screen, it's going to idle late. That's true, uh, actually. (laughs) Yeah, and it's going to play you a a trailer. and, And this is going to be a scene that's heavily sampled from in that. So... They kind of want this to be nested in the back of your head just a little bit. Oh, it is probably one of the more powerful scenes in the game. What's interesting here is when James makes it out, he's back in Silent Hill. After a descent seemingly miles to the center of the earth, he comes out a door and he's back on the surface. It's it's all very kind of disorienting. But he does end up able to take a boat across the lake to... The hotel, which is the final place, the, the apparently what he thinks is their special place. And when he gets into the hotel, he gets a map for the hotel. And in the room where he and Mary, his wife, had spent at one time, he sees that it has been marked on the map and it says waiting for you in that room. James goes through everything he needs to go through to get to that room. And one of the things he has to do, he ends up encountering Laura again. And she's acting a little bit more humanely to him at first. And uh, he's able to use her to help him find a videotape. And the videotape he takes to that room, he plays it, and it is through the videotape that it's almost like a repressed memory. 
And here's the big, big spoiler, of course, is that Mary didn't just die of illness. It's incredibly disturbing. He plays the tape and you see what, I mean, at this point, I think, I I had figured this out because there's enough teasing little clues to kind of get this in the back of your head, particularly as you begin to piece together Angela and Eddie's stories. Yeah. But what you see on the tape is James smothering Mary with a pillow. Mm -hmm. I think it fuzzes out on showing the exact explicit moment, but but still, I I mean, it's clear. It's just, it's far clearer than anything else that you're going to find. And I think that's probably the only time you see a character commit murder in a video game. Well, unless you're the player character and you're committing murder. (laughs) Um, well, in, in a way like this, you know, in, in a lot of video games like Call of Duty or what have you, violence and shooting people and murder, it, it's all kind of inconsequential. And that's one of the things I liked about this is the violence in Silent Hill 2 is not inconsequential. There are really drastic consequences for everything that happens and everything that has happened in the past. And it's those consequences that make it interesting. I mean, it is this repressed memory. It is James's deep, dark secret, which he couldn't even admit to himself, which created this environment, this basically it's hell, right? This environment Mm -hmm. for him to wade through in order to come to terms with what he's done. You know, he, he murdered his wife. And the consequences of that are pretty severe. And so the violence in this game is not inconsequential. And it's not just James where that's evident. The game gives us other examples of violence having consequences. And those other examples are in Angela and Eddie. So Angela is probably one of the most damaged characters and one of the ones who is truly victimized. As you discover, Angela had been sexually assaulted by her father and ended up killing him. And that is the source of her trauma. Eddie is one of these types who had been bullied his whole life, almost like a trench coat mafia kind of trope. But Eddie ends up being a bit of a serial killer. And and even they talk about some other serial killer type tropes, like he tortures and kills a dog and that kind of thing. When we come to Angela's end, it's almost almost on par with the Maria Jail storyline in terms of how haunting it is. But I want to get Eddie's out of the way first, because it's a little less strong for me. It's important to note that Eddie ends up going crazy, coming after James with a gun. Well, maybe he was right. Maybe I am nothing but a fat, disgusting piece of shit. But you know what? It doesn't matter if you're smart, dumb, ugly, pretty. It's all the same once you're dead. And the corpse can't laugh. And in order to defend himself, James ends up having to kill Eddie. And even if it's self-defense, James feels, I think, a sincere amount of remorse for having to kill another human being. But... It's important to keep in mind that Eddie is killed by James. Then we see Angela. And when we see Angela for the final time, she's on the stairwell and everything is surrounded in flame. It's a very different 
environment from the cold, metallic environment that James has seen this entire game. And this is where we get our first clue that all these different characters are in completely different environments because we're actually seeing through Angela's eyes for the first time. And in this scene, Angela asks for the knife back. And James says, It's hot as hell in here. And Angela turns and she says, You see it too. For me, it's always like this. And that, for me, was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is, that's where I get this, everything is internal about Silent Hill. Even if it's a manifestation, even if you want to take a supernatural approach or have a supernatural perspective on Silent Hill, it's still manifested by people's internal trauma. And Angela takes the knife and leaves the door. The inference... And it, the game chooses not to show this explicitly, but it is inferred that she goes and commits suicide. So mm-hmm. what she had planned to do from the very beginning, it's almost she was on an inevitable path in Silent Hill. But again, it's important to me that who kills Eddie, James, who kills Angela herself, and Laura acts like there's no danger to be had whatsoever. All of these characters, you'll notice, are not killed by the monsters in the town. Mm-hmm. They're not killed by Silent Hill. They're killed by something. To, the ones who do die, Eddie and, and Angela, anyway, they're killed by some aspect of their own personality, or as a consequence of what they're doing. I think that's really important. I also think that if the story were to really make sense, then James would not be killed by anything. But gameplay insists that <laughs> death is a uh, a consequence of the monsters. Well, you could extrapolate and say the monsters are a manifestation of James. So if James is killed by a monster, James is killed by himself. Exactly. Yeah. And that is kind of the way I would extrapolate it, including Pyramid Head, which, um, you know, the monsters could be a manifestation of James's what we learn is probably his disgust with the environment of ill health that his wife went through, his wife's illness was a terrible experience for James and his selfishness made him end that experience in a really horrific way. Well, that's also ambiguous because we don't know. There's no sound on the, we don't hear dialogue on the videotape. I mean, she might've exhorted him to do it. Except unless you get the leave ending. And this is my, this is my, this is my take on why I think the leave ending might be the ones that the creators really intended you to get a because it's the easiest to get but b because you get a very important bit of information and let's hold off on that actually until the end but i I do think that uh the leave ending he has a final conversation with mary and we get some allusion to what happened that being said uh (laughs) so angela's gone eddie's gone maria is gone a couple of times until James finally heads to find Mary, is interrupted on the way by finally having to face Pyramid Head. In this case, two Pyramid Heads, an old Pyramid Head and a new Pyramid Head. And Maria is there, chained up and screaming, and they end up killing her again. So James has had to see Maria die three times at this point. 
falling to his knees in turmoil at the sight of it. And why do you think there are two pyramid heads? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Do you want want my guess? I want your guess. James has committed murder again at this point. Oh, yeah. So the first pyramid head was his murder of his wife. The second pyramid head is his murder of Eddie. Both things he feels guilt for. Pyramid head is for me a representation or a manifestation of of the guilt of murder that he has carried with him and him having to face pyramid head is him facing that guilt now at this time james is a little bit more resolved and again what i think is so brilliant even though for gameplay's sake you do have to run around and shoot at them a few times james doesn't actually kill pyramid heads you know they Mm -hmm. they they kill themselves yeah that's true and you know the design of pyramid head the pyramid aspect of it, it is like a a torture device on his head sure you know it's, it's like, not armor some sort of it's like jacob marley's design. chain yeah but my assumption with pyramid head had always been that he was an externalization of james's sex drive well which... it does seem so with all the raping he's doing well, it's kind of a lot of raping. I mean, I like yours better. I suppose you could have two because, you know, one for Mary, one for Maria. But I do like yours better. And this is the ambiguity where it's open to interpretation. That's always what I had gotten from it is he doesn't get a second one until he kills Eddie. So it just seemed in terms of, you know, just the timeliness of it. And it was murder that created it in the first place. I also think that the sexual aspect... We don't know if the new Pyramid Head would have a sexuality about him in terms of sexual violence. Mm. But for me, the original Pyramid Head or the old Pyramid Head had a sexual aspect. And that was very important. And the fact that Maria, who at this point we might as well say, could represent, at least in my view, James's idealized version of Mary in terms of who he would have wanted Mary to be, not who Mary was, but who he would have preferred Mary to be. So or the aspects of Mary that Mary's disease prevented. Yeah, but you know, there's there's no telling that even if she was well, she would have been Maria. It was more mm-hmm. like his horny version of Mary. And that's important. It is. It's important because you could say that James wanted to kill Mary because he wanted to end her suffering. But there is definitely a selfish part of him that just wanted his life back, that just wanted, Mm -hmm. I want to end this torment. I want to go out and I want to sleep with other people. I've been stuck with this sick invalid of a wife for X amount of time. And so... With the original Pyramid Head, his guilt is a kind of repulsive mix of that sex drive and his guilt, or his guilt having a sexual component to it. And again, we don't get the evidence with the new Pyramid Head if there's a sexual component to that one. I just know that it appeared after he committed murder again. So that's my assumption. (laughs) Who knows? I like yours. I'm going with yours. Hmm? Sweet. (laughs) Anyway, so James is able to take from the now suicidal pyramid heads, their corpses, keys to the doors that'll lead him to finally find Mary, or at least a version of Mary that manifested itself from his guilt at what he had done to her. 
And his conversation with her could be different depending on how you played the game. But I'm going to approach this from the ending I got, which was the leave ending. And in the leave ending, when he approaches this version of Mary, it's actually Maria dressed in Mary's clothing. Mary? When will you ever stop making that mistake? Mary's dead. You killed her. Maria? And in the leave ending at this point, James has made his decision to choose Mary and the memory of Mary over this version of her, this Maria. And it makes Maria angry and he ends up having to fight and kill her again, which is a terrible thing. But it does put him at the bedside of Mary. That final battle, she doesn't want him to look at her. And, you know, the the way that you're supposed to fight the boss is to, you know, <laughs> shoot without looking, which is difficult to do. But it, it kind of plays into the Maria being disgusted at herself, at what the disease had wasted her into. That might be evidence for more of a euthanasia interpretation. Although, really... Even if that was an aspect of it, I I think that the fact that James feels that he's committed a sin and that he's done it for a selfish reason or, you know, that selfishness is any component of it is part of why he's in this purgatory. I think, yeah. And I think if selfishness or some sort of ill feeling wasn't a part of it, if it was pure euthanasia or pure... I want to end her suffering. I don't think his experience in Silent Hill would have been manifested. I think that there had to be more in order to create this feeling of guilt and trauma in him for him to have to go through Silent Hill in the first place. Most survival horror games have different endings. Yeah. That you get depending on how you play, what you do. Kind of a choose your own adventure aspect. Yeah. That also since the goals of the game are to survive it's a way of grading your performance i suppose <laughs> that's a, also another reason why you might want to play through multiple times because you can experience different endings to the story and most games have sort of what you know one canon ending you know one ending that's supposed to be in continuity but not necessarily and i think one of the genius things about this game is with the exception of the clear joke endings which there are a couple they all work really well yeah they could all make sense if you think about it yeah i mean for me the ones that make the most sense are maria water and leave yeah. Um, now, mm-hmm. in the leave ending, once you defeat this vicious or hostile manifestation of Mary, you end up sitting at her side in the hospital. And this part's really important. You know, for me and this ending, which is in some way, well, it is the happy ending. One thing I, I think a, that is important about it is what James finds at the end of this is a reconciling with the truth of what he'd done. And that's the only way he's able to move on and i would say that any opposition to that ending is the idea that james probably shouldn't move on that he needs to pay for what he's done but uh maybe i mean you could argue silent hill may have been payment i don't know Uh, i'll get your take on that in a second here but here's what he says at the bedside mary talks about how much she's in pain and he starts off and he says That's why I did it, honey. I just didn't want you to suffer anymore. And he catches himself. And he says, well, 
actually no, that's not true. It's like he's he starts mm-hmm. to lie, and then he realizes that you know that lie is going to make him go through this hell all over again. And he, you know, he says, that's not true. Actually, I wanted my life back. And he explicitly says that in this version. And so that's, you know, that was my take on on his selfishness. It also is, you know, the reason we see a Maria in the first place, too. And in that version, he's able to say goodbye to her and get a forgiveness from her. And we get the final letter from Mary. And of course, the leave at ending, we see James and Laura leaving through the cemetery again on the way out of Silent Hill. And that is the happiest version of the ending that you can get. In the leave ending, there's no sense of impending doom. You leave with Laura. You're wondering exactly what, I guess, Laura, his taking care of Laura is his penance for what he did, I think is what's implied, is now that he's going to be a guardian for Laura. If you get the Maria ending, in the end, he chooses Maria and kills Mary and goes off with Maria, which I guess is embracing his sexual nature. And they pay for that when she starts coughing. And also at the end, um, right before the Maria ending, Mary, final boss version, Mary does go, you know, James, did you think I'd forgive you for what you did to me? That's right. Although my favorite ending is definitely not the canon ending. (laughs) The water Um, (laughs) The dog No, nope. The special ending that you have to collect items for, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about this departing from the mythology uh-huh. completely. It doesn't have to if you get the rebirth ending. I lo- <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you collect these items throughout the course of the game and you just let them stay in your inventory. And then at the end, James will roll out onto Toluca Lake and he'll perform a ritual. To resurrect Mary. (laughs) Definitely not the canon ending. I think In Water is probably the one that I think is most canon. Essentially, James, after coming to this realization and coming to terms with himself, ends up to drive his car into the lake and commit suicide. Kind of dark. It's kind of dark. Do you think that Laura saw anything wrong with Satin Hill at all? There's no evidence that she ever did. That I can think of. I think the most explicit evidence that she didn't is how completely baffled she was when James was wondering why she didn't have a scratch on her. Mm -hmm. And then when she locks him in the room with that creature, it seems like she's, well, first of all, she's getting back at him for yelling at her. And second of all, she's just kind of being Laura. She's just being, you know, a jerky kid. It, mm-hmm. There's, I don't think she had any idea that any monster was in the equation at all. I don't think Laura saw anything wrong with Silent Hill. I think she saw that it was lonely. Yeah, I think she saw a lot that was wrong with James. Exactly. That was the only oh, thing yeah. that she James was reacting was, to. James was the scariest person in there for her. <laughs> you know, Eddie, she thought was repulsive and, and annoying. And she just called him a big fatso. She was another bully for him. Yeah, yeah, I don't think Laura saw anything wrong. We know for a fact that Angela saw it engulfed in flames. I'm willing to bet Eddie saw everything as being kind of like the meat locker where you fight. Yeah, probably. I see the town as an absolute reflection of James's guilt, James's memory of Mary. Even to the fact that the town is 
deserted and is this hellscape is blighted. Mm-hmm. It's very analogous to what happened to Mary's body. If her condition as a final boss is any indication, it's just such an effective story. And, you know, we've we've basically unwound the whole thing and the surprise aspect or, you know, the the gradual discovery aspect, because, like I said, once you get to that point of the game, I don't think it's really a surprise to anybody. But the dawning appreciation of the truth is such a unique experience. And I don't think that it necessarily would be completely diminished by being spoiled on the ending Mm -hmm. because it's very much a process. I think that Silent Hill 2 is such a complex story, is so ambiguous, is so open to interpretation that if someone's curious and has no intention of playing the game, they might think this is an interesting conversation anyway. But for people who are very familiar with the game, it could be interesting to hear another interpretation. And I would be welcoming to anyone who has alternate ideas or their own ideas of what happened in Silent Hill 2 or that kind of a different interpretation of the events of Silent Hill 2. Yeah, just don't be a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, video game players are never jerks. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, it's a great game. I do want to give a shout out to another game that Miguel has not played um, called Fatal Frame 2, which another part two. What is it with another part two? I don't know. Fatal Frame 2 doesn't depart from its original game as much as Silent Hill 2 did, but it was another sort of lightning in a bottle moment. And it's also very layered, very ambiguous. Even more Japanese really involves itself with uh, Shinto cults and things like that. Very spooky. Extremely creepy. Unconventional gameplay elements. Well worth playing. And another example of extraordinarily uh, brilliant sound design. There are resources. You know, you can go on YouTube. You can check out the soundtracks for Silent Hill 2 for all the Silent Hill games. Highly recommend the soundtrack at least. Yeah, the sound... Absolutely wonderful, creepy, great. Pure brilliance. Pure brilliance. And the Fatal Frame 2 soundtrack actually also is extremely good. Well, we'll always have Silent Hill (laughs) 2. We will always have Silent Hill 2. That's why I think it's really important to encourage people, even though this game is from 2001, it was remade in HD a couple years ago. You can find it. It's available. It's still completely worth playing. You can find scenes on YouTube, although that's not going to come anywhere close to the experience of playing it. I'd um, be very curious for anyone out there who doesn't normally play video games to give to give this a shot. To experience what I think, in my opinion, is kind of the pinnacle example of what can be done with an interactive medium and interactive storytelling and it doesn't have to take a really long time it's not something that requires 60 hours of gameplay and no it's you know what five or six hours to be maybe maybe if you're taking your time it could be eight to ten yeah Um, and if you just use a walkthrough you can do it in two (laughs) absolutely 
but yeah, I think it's really effective. I mean, I would hate, you know, as much as people want a, a sequel to it, I would hate to see a sequel to this. What I would like to see is the same kind of thought put into another game, the same kind of concepts, maybe not even concepts, but the same kind of humanistic approach to games where, you know, I'm not really interested in being a Marine. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, there's always exciting things happening in indie games all the time that's true in fact i played one that really interested me but it was for the iphone and my iphone wasn't strong enough to sustain it and it just froze and i haven't played it but it's called republic by camouflage the indie game company camouflage that was a real interesting game i haven't played it but i've seen it and i've thought about playing it but you know i'm going to be playing dragon age inquisition until mm, about this time next year i think (laughs) Wow. Also a good game to play, kids. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. We have talked the hell out of Silent Hill 2, which I knew, I knew, right? I knew we would. Silent Hill 2 has a really special play on my heart as a non-gamer, as someone who studies storytelling and loves horror and loves... I think I love the this use of horror. This is, you know, this is not a blood... In, you know, there's blood in it, sort of. But that that is not the source of the horror. The source of the horror here is dread and mystery and what is even more important, sadness. This game is built around tragedy. It's not an adventure. It is a experience with tragedy and consequence. And that's far more powerful. Well said. All right, on that note, uh, what do we have in store for the future? We'll be doing, we'll be taking the TCM Noir course, so we we'll have a couple Noir episodes. And uh, my last episode, as hopefully you people have listened to, is um, My Anticipation with Will McKinley, as well as the instructor Richard Edwards, and TCM's own Shannon Clute talking about the Noir class that TCM is offering in conjunction with Ball State University, which is called Into the Darkness investigating film noir uh hopefully yeah i think you'll still be able to enroll by the time this episode comes out but uh you'll get the chance to watch over 120 film noir films with tcm and uh and take a class in conjunction with it and you know you can participate as much or as little as you want it's free to the public whether or not you subscribe to tcm and it's also available internationally. So for those of you who listen to this show, I know in India and Japan and Korea and the UK and basically all over Europe, um, you all can participate as well. So if you find episode number 138 of the Horrible Imaginings podcast, you can find out more about that. Super good. And are we also going to do a Dark Shadows episode? Yes. Ooh, in fact, you're doing we're doing that every Sunday, right? Yes. <laughs> Sunday. Sunday we have Collins tweet. Hashtag C O L L I N S tweet. What time is that, Angela? That is at eight o'clock PM Eastern. Five o'clock Pacific. Five o'clock Pacific time. You can find all of the all of the deets and links and stuff on the hashtag. I'm maintaining a WordPress site and I'll be storifying everybody's tweets every week. So you can go and laugh and love 
Barnabas Collins with others after you've watched the episodes, and that's going to be super good. It's really fun. Follow Angela at Mecca Angela on Twitter, myself at H-I-F-F-S-D. But for now, you're probably pretty tired of hearing our voices, so we are going to say bye and stay scared. We need to stop that line of thinking right now. I know, right?